Well, it is my great privilege to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious and beautiful Word to the book of Ephesians in chapter 6 today. Ephesians chapter 6, and today we will be in verses 1 through 9. And as you make your way to Ephesians chapter 6, I invite you to stand in honor of reading God's perfect Word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, you indeed are worthy. You indeed are worthy of our praise. You indeed save. You indeed redeem. And we stand upon those truths. And so, Father, as we come and we open your word today, Lord, we recognize that we are so needy. So, Lord, fill us up with the truth of your word. For man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And so, Lord, we come. Lord, help us to feast upon your word today. By your grace, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. And let us rest in your truth today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I counted it up this morning. This is the 18th sermon from the book of Ephesians. Okay, so we have spent 18 sermons walking through the book of Ephesians. And some of us, and maybe you're still working on it, but some of us have learned all 12 verses of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. There's still plenty of room on that board out there, so like, you need to get your name on that board. I wrote my name as big as possible, apparently. So if you go by, uh, I wrote it intentionally big. I didn't mean to write it that big, so I stepped back and I was like, that's a little big. Uh, uh, and so... But there's still room for you to write your name on that board. But 18 sermons from the book of Hebrews. And the entire time that we've been in this book, we have seen the cosmic transformation that the love of Christ in the gospel brings. We've seen how it brings dead people to life. We've seen how... It means that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, becomes the guarantee of our internal, eternal inheritance. 
We see how it means that God is going to lavish His immeasurable riches on us forever in Christ Jesus. We see, we've seen over and over how it breaks down barriers, racial barriers between Jews and Gentiles. And it makes two groups who hated one another become one. And we see how that unity evidences itself in one body of Christ. And that that body becomes the mystery of God's grace in the world. We've seen how it transforms the relationship between husbands and wives. And that that husbands are called to love their wives as as Christ loved the church. And that frees wives to, to submit to their husbands' sacrificial, loving leadership. And then we get to today's text. And not shockingly, it continues. We see the, the transformation that the love of Christ in the gospel brings. And so, the, the, and it calls us to something. It calls us to a, a, a deep sense of service. It calls us to a deep sense of not just service, but bond service. And, and the first group that it talks to is, is family again. It is, it is parent and children. And it calls us to be bond servants in the family. To be bond servants in the family. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So notice, Paul is speaking to the next logical group. He just spoke to husband and wives uh, from the passage we looked at last week, but now he, he turns and speaks to children. Okay, That's, that's the logical ne- next step, but it's interesting. Paul takes the moment, takes the time, and he speaks to children. And so what it means is, children, if you're in the audience, this is a message for you too. The gospel is for you too. The transformative power of the grace of Jesus in the gospel is for you too. And and so Paul takes the time to speak to children. Now, even in this time, just speaking to children publicly, directly, would have been odd. Children were just kind of understood to be there. But Paul takes the time and he speaks to them. And so Paul is, at at this moment, he's placing value on children. He's saying that you have value, and if you have value, then you can have purpose. And so children, you can have purpose in the gospel. And since you can have purpose in the gospel, there are certain gospel truths that you can follow and obey. And the first one that you can follow is obey your parents. Obey. Children, to to conform to a command, to follow a command. Now, there shouldn't be anything shocking here. So, uh, an adult telling a child to obey their parents, right? Um, that that's just kind of how the world works. Okay, that's how the world has operated for millennia. Children, you're you're supposed to obey your parents. And in fact, if like there was a all of a sudden uh, a, a, re- a rebellion of children not obeying their parents, the world would kind of fall apart. And so there's nothing shocking here when Paul says, children, obey your parents. That's just how families work. That's just how families operate. And that's why Paul says, it's right. 
It's, it's right for children to obey your parents. And, and listen, the, the Jews in the audience here would, would be familiar with any number of Proverbs that encourage the obedience to your parents and the wisdom that that, that has of obeying your parents. But let's, let's be honest, the Gentiles aren't out there encouraging their children to disobey their parents. It's not what's going on. But Paul doesn't stop with just saying, children, obey your parents. He offers a vitally important prepositional phrase. He says, obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord. That one phrase takes the obedience of children just from something that that works, something that you're supposed to do, and it gives it cosmic significance. It gives it cosmic significance. He's communicating something. He's saying that in your obedience, children, you're actually submitting to something much greater, something much higher than just your parents. You're submitting to the Lord. In other words, your obedience is not just about getting your parents off your back. Your your obedience isn't just about making your parents happy. Your obedience is about how you relate to the Lord. And so Paul talks about this obedience, but but he even says it's not just about how the world works. He says God has, has specially revealed this truth as well. And so Paul turns to Scripture, and he says, in verses 2 and 3, he quotes the fifth commandment. Verse 2, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And so Paul turns to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the top ten list of the commandments. And now, you'll notice if you read this and if you turn to the, the Ten Commandments, what Paul's doing, he's actually kind of conflating the two telling of the commandments. So there's a first telling in Exodus chapter 20. There's a second telling in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so Paul kind of takes the two and he, he kind of combines them. Okay, And so in Exodus chapter 20, the, the focus that he draws from is that your days will be long. And then Deuteronomy chapter 5, the focus is on that it may go well with you in the land. So Paul takes these two, he kind of conflates them together, but the the truth that honoring your mother and father is there. To honor, to regard, to esteem, to respect. And so, yes, it, it... There's a sense where children are to obey, but there's also a sense where obedience, children, your obedience, is just the bare minimum. It's just the bare minimum. You're to to honor your parents. You're to value them. You're to show regard for them. You're to revere them. There's a sense where Honor includes an idea of esteeming your parents. You esteem your parents. You have a reverence for them. And, and you're to do it in such a way, so your obedience in the Lord is supposed to be in such a way that your parents are esteemed, not just esteemed by you, but esteemed by the community because of your obedience. 
Think about that. Children, when you think about your obedience to your parents and how you honor your parents, do you realize that as you honor your parents, you're saying something about your family? As you're honoring your parents, the community is seeing you and your obedience. And if you are obedient, if you're honoring your parents well, there's a sense where your family will be esteemed by the community. Now, we see this even in our context today. I've seen it in our church. Think about it. Think about it for a moment. There's, there's some kids, you see a family, their kids are they're hard workers, they have, they have good attitudes, they have a heart for service, they, they have good friends, they encourage other students, they're obedient to other adults in, in the body, they're doing their best to follow Christ. What do you often hear other adults saying about those kids? Well, you may hear them say something like, well, those are good kids. But you also hear something else quite often. I've heard it in the hall out there. You hear things like, that's a great family. That's a great family. And all they're doing is looking at the attitude and the obedience and how these kids are honoring their mother and father, and they're saying, that's a great family. And so kids... Honoring your mother and father says something about your family. And ultimately, if your family is in Christ, your family says something about Christ. And so in honoring your, your mother and father and obeying your mother and father, you're pointing people to your family and your family's pointing people to Christ. Your obedience, kids, your obedience, children, has cosmic significance. It's not just about you staying out of trouble. It's about making much of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul, he offers kind of a, a, a parenthetical statement here. He, there's, a, there's a parenthesis. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise. Alright, so if you're familiar with the Decalogue, you may open up the the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and you may read the Second Commandment and say, "Eh, that seems to be a promise there. So what does Paul mean by this is the first commandment with a promise? Well, probably the the best way to understand it is that 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 first command, or that commandment in Exodus, or the Second Commandment in Exodus, is, is more a general commandment for everybody. And so this is the first commandment that is specifically for a very specific group of people. In other words, children. So, this is the first commandment with a promise. And so, why is it here? Why does Paul feel the need to make this statement? Well, we have to remember, like this is two groups being brought together. This is Jews who would have been clearly familiar with this commandment, and Gentiles who may not be familiar with this commandment. And so, there's a sense where Paul is telling the Gentiles, he's instructed the Gentiles that, it's, it's not just right to be obedient to your, to your parents. There's benefit. It is beneficial to be obedient to your parents. Now, what he's doing here is he's stating a principle. Okay, He's not offering a formula. Paul is not saying, if you do X plus Y, you get Z. That's not what Paul is saying. That's probably the extent, so that is the extent of my math formula that I could have come up with. So, x plus y equals z. Okay, I'm not a mathematician. 
Far from it. But that's, Paul is not offering a formula. He's offering a principle. And let's be honest. It's a principle that just makes sense. Children, if you obey, if you honor your parents, you're going to probably escape a good many things that aren't good for you. You're going to escape a good many sins that are meant to destroy you. That are meant to put you in peril and put you in danger. Things that can shorten your life. The devil wants to destroy you and he does it through sin. And so in obeying your parents, if your parents are pushing you or pointing you to wisdom, you you have the ability to do that. And so yes, it may extend your life. Also, if you fail to obey your parents, if you fail to honor your mother and father, there's a chance that your life is going to be much more miserable because you're going to be running away from wisdom and to folly. And in folly, there is misery. And so when Paul comes and he says, look, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land, that promise if you obey your mother and father, it's a promise that if you, if you obey them in wisdom, you can avoid many things that are going to make your life short and miserable and difficult. But notice what Paul does. He expands this promise. Because in the Old Testament, these commandments are giving, given to the Israelites. And Paul here is giving it, is taking this commandment and giving it not just to the Israelites, but expanding it to the Gentiles. Paul even expressly kind of leaves out the reference to the Canaan promised land. He does that in Deuteronomy where he says, the land that he is giving you, that I am giving you. So he leaves that out here. This is why some translations, if you have a different translation, it may say something like, live long on the earth. And so, what Paul is doing here, he's taking this and he's saying this promise is, is good not just for Jew, but also for Gentile. In other words, for all who believe, this promise applies. And so, if you think about it, children, following your parents is cosmically significant. But you also have the blessing of the hope that your life will, will be better. That it'll, it'll have meaning. It'll have significance. And so parents, or so children, when I say obey, you may think, ugh, obey. Adults do that too, by the way. But, parent, but children, you may think, ugh, obey. Because you, we think in our, in our twisted, fallen minds that obedience is a bad thing. But obedience is a blessing. It is a good thing. Obedience isn't drudgery. No, obedience is freedom. If you're serving your parents in the Lord, that is freeing. Because, again, you're serving a higher purpose. Something even beyond your parents. But Paul doesn't stop here. He says, he speaks to children, but then he turns in verse 4 and he says, Fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers. Now dads, I know what you're thinking. You're like, no, wait a minute. Paul, why are you turning your sights on me? What about mom? Okay? Now, 
That's not to say that there's not implications for mothers and fathers here, but Paul is specifically speaking to fathers. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. First, we kind of need to wrap our heads around the, the Roman idea of fatherhood. Okay? In, in the Roman Empire, fathers were literally the absolute sovereign of their homes. They were the absolute sovereign. There, there was a, there, it was written into law, Roman civil law code. I'm going to try to resurrect my Latin here, so bear with me. He says, it's called patria postestis. Okay? All right. All that means is the father's power. Okay? And so, William Barclay, uh, a commentator, he, he describes it like this. Listen to this. The Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands. He could punish them as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. That was the Roman idea of fatherhood. This cruel authoritarian power that a father could wield over his family, over his children. And so Paul comes along and speaks to Roman fathers and says, do not provoke your children to anger. That is radical to this audience. Because if I can do whatever I want to to my children, if I can literally kill them, if I can sell them if I wanted to, now I'm being told don't even provoke them to anger? That says something about fatherhood. That says something about how you should view your children. Your children just aren't something for you to deal with. Your children have a value beyond how they can please you and benefit you. In other words, Paul's telling these fathers, Paul's telling us as as fathers, maybe you should treat your child the way you want to be treated. Would you want to be provoked to anger? Or exacerbated, which is what some translations use? What does it mean to, to provoke or exacerbate your child? How can you do that? Well, maybe you're overly severe with your child. Maybe you lose your temper with your child regularly. Maybe that's how your child knows how you relate to them, is through anger. Maybe you're arbitrary in the way you punish, or the way you discipline. You, you, you may discipline them for this one day and then totally ignore it the next day. And if you're a child, that makes no sense. Like, why am I, why, why am I punished here or why am I disciplined here and not here? Maybe in your discipline of your child, you humiliate them in public. You call them out. You yell. You belittle them. You, you, you use words that you shouldn't use. You degrade them. Maybe you're just a father or a parent and, and you just criticize. And you criticize. And you criticize. And you nag. And you nag. And you nag. Or maybe as a father, you just abuse your authority. Any of those and many more could provoke your children to anger. Now, Paul is not saying that there will never be a time where your, where your child might 
be angry at you. Let's be honest. A child that is fallen, that we live in a fallen world, a child is going to push against godly instruction from time to time. Just like you adults do. You're going to push against godly instruction from time to time. And Paul's not saying you never make your child angry, but what he's saying, you shouldn't consistently provoke your children to anger. What Paul is saying is that even in the discipline and instruction of your child, what your child needs to know, they need to understand the heart behind the discipline and instruction. And we, we see this in other places in Scripture. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, you'll see kind of the description of, of the Father, the Heavenly Father's heart for His children, for us. And He talks about discipline and, 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 his, and the purpose of the Heavenly Father's discipline. And the writer of Hebrews says, for the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The heart behind discipline, the Heavenly Father's discipline for us, is that we would flourish. The heart behind your discipline as a parent, the heart behind your discipline as a father, is that your kids, your children, would flourish. Now, that doesn't happen if your kids are just something to benefit you just something for you to deal with. Fathers, your kids aren't something for you just to deal with. Fathers, your kids are something for you to develop, to invest in. This is why he says, bring them up, develop them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And he says, fathers, because fathers, dads, There's no escaping it. You are the leader of the home. You're the leader of the home. It's just logical. He spent spent the last few verses that that we looked at last week saying that wives submit to your husbands, and husbands, you lovingly and sacrificially lead your wives. So wives, you submit to your husband. Then he tells children to obey your mother and father. What that means is, father... You're the leader, which means you are the primary disciplinarian and instructor of the home. You are the leader. And good leaders understand that you take ownership. You take ownership of everything. When I say ownership, I don't mean possession. What I mean is responsibility. You're responsible for your home. Everything in your home falls under your responsibility as the ultimate leader. And what that means is no absenteeism allowed. No absenteeism allowed as a father. That doesn't mean just physical absenteeism. There's fathers who are present all the time, but they're still absent. They're spiritually absent. They're emotionally absent. Maybe you're the father who comes in, sits on the couch, and turns on Sports Center and says, She can deal with it. That's absenteeism. And so that's not allowed. If you're the leader of the home and you are as a father, you are as a dad, which means that dirty diaper that just ran by you, that's your dirty diaper. 
That means that teenager that just talked back to your mother, to your wife, to their mother, that's yours to deal with. That means that failing grade that came on that report card, that's yours to ask why and how can I help. Dads, that dating question that your daughter has, that's yours to answer. Because you own it all as the leader of the home. Now, to lead this way means you have to love aggressively. It means you have to love aggressively. It means you you have to take moment by moment, every moment possible, to love, to teach, to lead, to guide, to encourage, to correct, to roughhouse, to play catch, to have a tea party, to brush a doll's hair. Every opportunity is an opportunity to inculcate the gospel truths and the discipline and instruction of the Lord into your, into your child's life. It is a joy to be a father. It is a cosmic reality. It is, is powerfully cosmic to be a father. And so the call to bring up your child in the discipline and instruction of of the Lord is a call to help your kids flourish, to point them to Christ. In developing children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, you are, by God's grace, developing children who will believe the truth of the gospel and then take that truth to the world. Cosmic significance in the way you parent. Your family has cosmic significance. Children, your call to obey and honor your parents is a call to help the world see your family and not just see your family, but see through to the person that your family serves. Parents, you're called to raise your children up in the fear and instruction of the Lord is a call to point them to Christ, to help them become followers of Christ and take the message of the gospel to the world. Your family is not just something that is. It is something with meaning, with purpose, that can transform the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe your family can transform the world because it can because of the gospel? But Paul doesn't just stop there because he, begins, he, he, he takes the next step and he, he deals with something that was common in the home during this time. And he calls bondservants to be bondservants as to the Lord. Look at verse 5, the first part of verse 5 with me. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, again, we need to pause. Paul is speaking to a group of people that people just don't speak to publicly and directly. He's speaking to bondservants. He's speaking to slaves. And and slaves weren't considered something that you needed to deal with. You needed to talk to. You needed to reference. In fact, they weren't much more than property. Hellenistic historian uh, Polobius says this. He says that slaves are no, no more than cattle. They are just household goods. The famous... Philosopher Aristotle says, A slave is a living tool, as a tool is an inanimate slave. 
And so when Paul comes and he references, he, he speaks to bondservants, he speaks to slaves, it is a cultural oddity. Now, there's plenty of moral teaching out there during this time that, that speaks to masters and, and tells them how, they, how you should treat your slaves. But Paul here speaks to slaves. So even in referencing them, even in addressing them, he's honoring them as people. He's, he's recognizing them as fellow image bearers and is recognizing them as fellow image bearers. Image bearers. He's, he's saying that you are moral agents. You're not just a tool. You're a moral agent. And as moral agents, there's a certain moral that you should live. And so these four verses from 5 to 8 is one long sentence. And the overarching imperative of this one long sentence is obey. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Obey them with, with deep, deep reverence and, and deep respect. Now again, nothing radical here. Obey bondservants, obey your masters. And Paul could have stopped there in this cultural context, but he doesn't. Look at the rest of verse 5 and verse 6. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. There's a sense where this one phrase sets these bondservants free. Their service now has a deeper, greater meaning and purpose. They're not just serving these earthly masters. No, they're serving Christ. It is giving these bondservants and their work and their service cosmic purpose. They're not just serving earthly masters. They're serving the Lord of the universe. It gives all of us hope for eternal significance in what we do on a daily basis. Why? Because as they are bondservants of Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a bondservant of Christ. Think about it. He purchased you with His blood. We belong to Him. Therefore, any service we render is service to Him. Any service. He owns us by His blood. And that frees us. That frees us from serving in such a way that we're just seeking to be people pleasers. That we're seeking that, that man can give us approval. It frees us to know that even if we never, ever, ever get that approval, that we are serving Christ as His bondservant. It transforms mundane tasks. These mundane tasks have been subsumed into the, the higher calling and the higher purpose of doing the will of God. Your mundane task has cosmic purpose because of the gospel. And you can do it because you are a bondservant of 
Christ. Ultimately, you, bondservant, ultimately you, church, are serving someone greater. Even if there's never any gratitude shown, even if you're never recognized, even if you are mistreated, you can still serve. There's still meaning in it. Let's think about it. Christ did the ultimate good for those who slayed Him. And so we, as followers of Christ, are set free not just to serve earthly masters, but to serve Christ the Master. That is free. That should set us free. To mean, and it means that we get to work with excellence no matter what. It means we get the, the freedom to serve for the good of even a master. It frees you to serve for their good. Not for their approval, but for their good. Not to avoid their, their punishment, but for their good. Why? Because we are called in verse 7, we are called to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not man. Do you desire the good will of your boss? Do you desire his good? Or are you just terrified of him? Or maybe just seeking his approval? Or do you work for his good? That's what Paul is calling these, these, these bondservants to do. And so we are free to do that, to, to seek the good of others. But it gets even better. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. You're going to receive it back from the Lord. Do good to others as to the Lord. This is an amazing promise that you're going to receive it back from the Lord. And this should be the only recognition that any of us need. Think about it. Think about the day that you stand before Christ and you hear the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. Are you going to be thinking about that day your boss didn't recognize your good work on that project? I doubt it. All you're going to do is rest in the approval of your Savior. Why not do that now? Rest in the approval of your Savior. Now, let's talk about real life for a second. Not that this hasn't been real life. But maybe you have that boss. Maybe you have that supervisor. Now look, I've had some bosses. I'm going to be honest. I've managed hotels, and I've had some hotel owners. I've shared with my high school guys at BFG, it's about the only time I've almost ever gotten in a fight as an adult was with a hotel owner, okay? So I've had some bosses. Didn't always handle as Christ-like as I should have, right? But 
what happens if you have that boss? What do you do? Well, you, you render service to them with a good will. You recognize, A, they probably need Jesus, and B, it's not about them. Your service isn't about them. It is more cosmically significant than that. And so what do you do? You aggressively do good to them in the Lord. You get to aggressively do good to this boss who mistreats you. You get to aggressively do good to this boss who never recognizes you. You get to do more good and and heap more good and more good upon them. You can drown them with good. It's the free nature of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And it gives your mundane efforts and your mundane tasks cosmic significance. But he doesn't just stop with bondservants. Because he speaks to leaders. And he tells leaders to be bondservants as you lead. Be bondservants as you lead. Now, if I'm a master and I'm hearing these last four verses, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, buddy. Go on. Amen, brother. But then Paul turns and he says, masters, and my ears pierce up. Oh, now he's speaking to me. And what does he say? Look at the first part of verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. What does that mean? Does it mean, masters, all of a sudden you, you, you obey your bondservants? Like there, there's no more like bondservant-master relationship going on? I don't think that's what Paul, Paul is doing here. If Paul wanted his masters to obey bondservants, he would have just said, masters, obey your bondservant. In the same way, he didn't, he didn't do away with the, 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 the husband and wife function in relationship. No, Paul's not erasing Paul is transforming. More accurately, he's showing how the gospel transforms this relationship. And what Paul is saying is that, that there is equality in standing before Christ, and that can coexist, coexist with a differentiation of function. And so, what is the same thing? What does Paul mean when he says, Masters do the same thing? Well, he's calling masters to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not men. The same call goes to masters as it does bond servants. You serve others, masters. You serve your bond servants, masters, as you serve Christ. This would have sounded preposterous in this audience. Remember, these are, these are slaves. They're, these are just tools with souls, is how they're described. What do I care about their good? I can sell them. What do I care about their good? And Paul is saying, no, Master, you render good even to your bondservants. In other words, they are more valuable than how they benefit you. This is no longer a, a transactional relationship. 
This is no longer a commercial relationship. You do good to them as image bearers. And so remember, the gospel frees bondservants to serve for the good of their masters. Masters, the gospel sets you free to serve for the good of your bondservants. This is absolutely counter-cultural, and it makes no sense apart from the radical love of Christ in the gospel. So how do, how do you serve your bondservants? Well, how about the first thing you do is you stop your threatening. Stop your threatening. This is the negative of the positive command. And so he says, stop your threatening. You know, threatening was just a recognized way to keep slaves in order during this time. You rule by fear. You exercise your authority over them. You threaten by you threaten to sell them. You threaten to kill them. You, you threaten to separate them from their family. Paul says, no. In Christ, you exercise your authority through service. Paul tells us, that the gospel transforms how we lead. You bring up and you serve. So, masters, you stop your threatening and you serve your bondservants. Why? The last half of verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Master, you're not more worthy than your slave. Slave, bondservant, you are not less worthy than your master. Christ has died for both, making two disparate socioeconomic groups one. That's why he says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27-28, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Master, your bondservant is your bondservant's value is dictated by what Christ has said about them and what Christ has done for them, not how they can benefit you. And so the radical love of Christ transforms even this relationship. And the reality is, it's probably not a big jump to apply this. We all have people that we answer to. And unless you're a very, very small, tiny child, you, we probably all have people to answer to us. Even if you're the CEO of a major corporation, you answer to shareholders. Even if you're a business owner, you answer to customers. So the questions we need to ask ourselves is, are we, are you humbling yourself as Christ did to sacrificially serve those below you? Are you honoring those above you by serving them with excellence, knowing that you're not that you are serving Christ, the Master? The gospel transforms and frees us to do that. And so, how you relate to to those above you and those under you has cosmic significance. Now, I want to deal with one question very briefly as we, as, we, as we close. 
And, and, and the question I've kind of phrased in my mind is, why didn't Paul? Why didn't Paul? Why didn't Paul just say, set them free? Why didn't Paul just say, emancipate them? Now listen, our discomfort with slavery only helps us to kind of better grasp the meaning of this, of this passage, of this text. When Paul calls masters to serve in all the ways that we just talked about, it makes the call all the more radical. But we need to kind of wrap our heads around the idea of Roman slavery. Now, Roman slaves were not always treated well. They were considered chattel. They were considered property. There are accounts of them being treated poorly, mistreated, but that's by no means universal. But even by the time of the writing of the New Testament, which is Paul writing here, the legal status of slaves is beginning to change. It's beginning to improve. Uh, Seneca, who is a Roman Stoic philosopher, you can see it in his writing. He's writing at the exact same time Paul is writing. He, he's beginning to, to appeal to masters that they would treat their slaves better. So we, we kind of have to be careful not to take our, our new world understanding of slavery and lay it over the Roman Empire. Slavery in the Roman Empire, first, it wasn't racial. It wasn't based on race. Slaves in the Roman Empire, they, they were encouraged to be educated. Slaves often took, took care of sensitive tasks. They were high, highly responsible for social functions. Slaves in the Roman Empire could be doctors, they could be teachers, they could be writers, they could be accountants, they could be bailiffs, there was overseers, there's sea captains who were slaves. Even the famous Plato was a slave. Bond servants, slaves, they could own property. There's accounts of slaves owning other slaves in the Roman Empire. And so we have to be very careful to take, take our new world understanding of slavery and lay it over the Roman Empire. But slavery in the Roman Empire, they, they had religious freedom. They had the, the right to assemble. Not only that, but there was a pretty consistent expectation that if you were a slave, by the time you reached 30, you would be set free. And so it's a different understanding of how we kind of grasp and understand slavery. But at the same time, it was a reality in the world. When I say reality, by some estimates, there were six 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. There were more slaves than there were, than there were free, men, free men. They constituted the workforce. They were the administrators. They were the teachers. They were the ones who kept the economy going throughout the Roman Empire. So no one really ever asked the question. No one ever really queried the arrangement. It wouldn't have been seen as, a, as, a, as necessarily as a problem. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes it like this, Paul could no more envision a world without slavery than we could envision a world without electricity. It's just the way the world was. It's how it operated. But let's speak some truth into that world. Let's be honest. Ephesians or no place in Scripture ever blesses the institution of slavery. Ever. 
when we, when we read carefully this passage that we read, we'll begin to realize that even in these four verses, we see the seed of slavery's undoing. Yes, Paul tells them to obey, but he reframes slavery. And he talks about, he frames it in, 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 in reference to their relationship with Christ. So slaves are not defined by being owned by the earthly masters, but they're defined by the relationship with their heavenly masters. Slavery would be abolished from within, and a glorious, transformed body would replace the old. And so Paul is asking a different question. He looks at the present reality and he asks, how can everyone live into the radically freeing love of Christ in the gospel and then live that out? His answer, no matter your position, no matter your title, no matter what you do, no matter who you relate to, you have been transformed by the radical love of Christ in the gospel. And that frees us to serve no matter our position, no matter our title, and then to rest in the love of Christ. And that's the very same question we should ask ourselves today. No matter what the world looks like, no matter your position, no matter your title, the gospel is still true. And since the gospel is always true, we are freed by the radical love of Christ in it. How can I live into the radical, freeing love of Christ where I am? That's the question we ask ourselves. As a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, as a boss, as an employee, as a brother, as a sister, as a Jew, as a Gentile, you, all of that has been transformed by the radical love of Christ in the gospel. And so ultimately, the one who sets us free from all of it is the one who became a slave, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we are set freed in him and freed to serve because of him and in light of him. And we are bondservants of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we thank you for your transforming gospel, the grace that you lavish on us and how it transforms everything, our relationships, our lives, our work, our service, our love. And you do it all for your glory. It gives us cosmic significance and cosmic meaning. And we bless you for it. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.